Welcome to Behind the Headlines. This show is a Friday morning Utah news roundup from the Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. Heard around the state on Utah Public Radio. I'm Roger McDonough. Today on the show, the Salt Lake County Council votes to overturn the public health school mask order issued by County Health Director Dr. Angela Dunn. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints issues a call to its members to wear masks and get vaccinated. And new census figures cement Utah's place as the fastest growing state in the nation. Joining me all via Zoom for this conversation, we've got Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. And uh, good morning to you, Leah. Welcome. Good morning, Roger. Hi. Uh, Tribune reporter Tony Semerad is with us as well. And thanks for being here, Tony. Hi, everybody. Hello. And also on the line, we've got uh, Tribune news columnist Robert Gerke. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Roger. And good morning. And joining us just a little bit later in the show, we'll have Tribune religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. Stay tuned for that. Listeners, uh, you can, as always, join us with your questions and comments. We ask that you do that via Twitter today. Our handle is at KCPW. Um, well, masks. Uh, here, here we go again talking about masks. And that's because uh, both of a, a surge in cases that we've been seeing and because of the approaching school year, Leah Larson... Um, We've talked about this before, but Dr. Angela Dunn, who became you know a household name during the pandemic as Utah's as as the state epidemiologist, um, now as director of Salt Lake County Health Department, she issued a public health order requiring masks in Salt Lake County schools, uh, kindergarten through sixth grade. However, yesterday the county council voted to overturn that order. Um, Let's let's get the basics out of the way first. Tell us how this vote unfolded, if you don't mind. This was a special meeting of the council for this for this one issue, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so last week at the council's, the county council's regular meeting, um, they were kind of taken aback because a large group of anti-mask parents showed up um, and commented for I think about two hours, just very passionately against masks, thinking that they, you know, do psychological and emotional damage to their kids. Um, which, you know, there's not necessarily evidence for that, but they they believe in this strongly. Um, and then Angela Dunn <clears throat> followed up with her her weekly, you know, COVID updates, and she told the council at that point that she would not issue a mandate that she had not issued a mandate and would not issue a mandate without um, knowing that the council would, uh, you know, back her up because she didn't want to put the public through that kind of back and forth. Yeah. But to at least some council members surprise, she did end up issuing a mandate for elementary schools uh, earlier this week. Um, In fact, while the council members were in their formal meeting. Um, So that's where they were at. And they uh, convened a special meeting yesterday. And on party lines, the Republicans, six to three, voted to. Yeah, the the Republicans voted to overturn it. Um, There was in advance of the vote, there was this intense effort uh, by parents, you know, um, uh, those who were both in support of the mandate and those who were opposed to it, uh, reaching out to council members. I mean, there was really quite a bit of public focus on this uh, in advance of that vote, right? Yeah. One council member told me that she had been receiving six to seven emails on this issue a minute, and she had been up till three in the morning talking to concerned parents. 
and then the calls began again at 6 a.m. <laughs> so yeah, they, they've been re- receiving some intense, intense feedback on both sides. And as you said, it ended up coming down on, on party lines, this vote uh, yesterday, Republicans on the council, you know, for repealing the health order, Democrats against repealing it. Um, this is a, a tough, a tough one. But can you sort of distill their arguments for us? You know, those two sides, Leah. You mentioned that on the one side they they had this argument about um, emotional harm, and um, and I can't remember the second part of that. But uh, yeah, can you can you distill those arguments for and against? You know, I think there's some nuance on both sides. But you know, on one on the one hand, you have people who are maybe against masks for political reasons. Um, uh, maybe they've been fed some misinformation about the effectiveness of masks, um, you know, decided to go on Google and do their own research. Um, or, or, you know, frankly, they just are sick of masks. They're sick of masking up their kids. Their kids are sick of wearing masks. And then on the other side, you have a group of concerned parents who listen to the advice of Dr. Dunn, um, who are worried about their own kids and, you know, the growing risk with the Delta variant, which is much more contagious. We're seeing a lot more cases in children in the last few months and, are, you know, are, are a bit terrified to send their kids back to school without masks. Um, the right, You've got one side saying this is about also to a certain extent about parental choice. You know, the, 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 we get to decide what our kids do. The other side pointing to the recommendations of health experts and healthcare professionals. And actually, Leah, you reported um, that before this meeting, just about an hour before this meeting, a doctor from Intermountain Healthcare spoke during a virtual press conference about the pending return to school, the you know, the fall return to school. And I actually have a couple of clips here from that press conference of Dr. Andrew uh, Pavia, who is director of of uh, hospital epidemiology at Primary Children's Hospital. And I want to play those. The, the first clip here echoes some of um, Dr. Angela Dunn's concerns about the Delta variant and the risk that it poses to kids. And the second is about masks. But here's here's the first. Again, this is Dr. Andrew Pavia with Intermountain Primary Children's Hospital. The Delta variant has been an enormous game changer for children. It has uh, led to really high numbers of children being diagnosed around the country. It's twice as transmissible. And because of that, it's leading to an enormous numbers of cases in children and a certain percentage of those get very sick and are hospitalized. Nationally, last week, there were 94,000 new diagnoses of COVID-19 in children around the United States. And there were 16,000 children hospitalized last week. That is the greatest number of children hospitalized in the United States at any point in the pandemic. Okay, so that's um, the spread that he's concerned about from the Delta variant. And then here is Dr. Pavia's statement on masks, uh, again, in a press conference that seemed to be timed to be in advance of that county council meeting yesterday. Take a listen to this. What we do know is that masks work best if everyone wears them. They don't work terribly well for the person who is wearing a mask if everyone around them is shedding virus. We do know that school can be safe in person, but it can't be safe if we don't have universal masking. Um, We have studies from many parts of the world and parts of the U.S. where masking wasn't enforced, where transmission in classrooms happened. That leads to transmission in the family and that leads to transmission in the community. The other thing I really want people to be aware of is that not all kids are healthy and as um, able to fight off the effects of COVID as others. 
depending on how you estimate it, up to a fifth of children in school have a medical condition that might put them at increased risk. It may be asthma, it may be diabetes, it may be obesity, or maybe something much more serious like cancer or a transplant. Those kids can only be protected adequately if everyone is wearing a mask. Uh, again, that's uh, Dr. Andrew Pavia from Intermountain Healthcare and Leah Larson. Uh, this is roughly the same data that Dr. Angela Dunn was citing, the same evidence that she was pointing to for issuing her original health order. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us what Dr. Dunn said after, you know, after the, the county council said, we're repealing your order. What, what was her response to that? Um. You know, I think she's trying to stay out of the politics of all of this. She's like a, you know, a health professional, not a politician. Right. She's nonpartisan. Um, so she thanked the council for their quick action, their quick decision. And she just basically is going to move forward and do the best she can. Um, of course, being cautionary that this disease is very contagious and kids are at risk. And I think she's going to keep, you're going to hear that message from her a lot over the school year. Yeah. Um, I think maybe it's worth noting one scary statistic she cited ahead of all of this is that she expects one child to be hospitalized with COVID every other day once school starts. Hmm. Um, And so she said that part of the reason that she had issued her order in the first place uh, was that she wanted to send this message to parents that they should send their kids back to school in masks. Um, I want to come back to that. The, the Tribune also, Leah, got reaction from Salt Lake County Mayor Jenny Wilson uh, as well. She made she made this analogy between, um, uh, you know, Dr. Dunn, the, the the head of the health department and the county's public works director. Do you, do you um, can you tell us about what doc, uh, what uh, Salt Lake County Mayor Jenny Wilson said? Yeah, actually, moments after the county council voted um, to t- overturn the mask mandate, I got to sit down with the mayor one on one. And she equated this to, you know, if a building collapsed, kind of like we saw in Florida not too long ago, yes. the public works director came in and said, you know, we need to put the rescue crew over here and we need to put, you know, cranes and some equipment over there in order to save lives. She compared it to, you know, the, the council, you know, just breezing in and deciding that they knew better and overturning you know, the professional uh, expertise of the public works director. Um, She said that's basically what the council had just done. Right. She said that the council members who voted to overturn this were, quote, you know, more concerned about winning than about protecting uh, their children's health. Leah, can the mayor, can Mayor Wilson do anything here? I mean, at the, at the state level, a governor has veto power, you know, in the, in the executive of of the federal office, the president has veto power. How about, uh, how about a mayor, a county mayor? You know, Republicans have a veto-proof majority on the council, so so no. But, you know, the way the legislature has wrote some bills recently relating to the pandemic and kind of wheeling in the powers of health departments and executives, it's it's not entirely clear if she could have repealed it, had it, you know, had it been a closer vote. Um, even, you know, I asked them up until, like, moments before the vote if they thought that she could veto their their vote and and you know her office told me that they were still looking into that okay um i mean there's a lot more reaction we can get to here i i think i'm going to bring in the news columnist leah here for a moment the uh you know an opinion columnist at the tribune i'll mention just for clarity's sake uh, i've seen some confusion on twitter robert gerke um robert masks and kids i mean um if i remember correctly you have school-aged kids what what do you think 
of what happened at yesterday's, you know, Salt Lake County Council meeting. How how are you thinking about this? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, my my school age kid is old enough to be vaccinated. He's been vaccinated for a few months. Um, okay. If I if my if I had a child who was unvaccinated, I'd be really concerned about this right now because um, we're we've got. I've written about this before, but our, our our cases among young people, among the age, the five to 13 age group are about four, four and a half times what they were going into the school year last year. Uh, and we, when we got into the school year last year, we saw an increase in cases. That's I, I think logic would indicate that we should expect that this time. But when we're starting with, a you know, such a head start from last year. And we have a variant that we don't really understand that seems to be infecting children at a higher rate. And as Dr. Pavia said, uh, is is sending kids to hospitals at higher rates. I think there's a real cause for concern right now. And, and I think it's unfortunate that, that rather than listen to medical experts uh, who uniformly and, and widely uh, encourage the, uh, the wearing of masks, that they that these council members think that they know best. And they're, you know, and it's it's not they couch it as a, a, parent, a parental rights issue that parents should get to choose for their children. And I think that if they want to continue that to its logical conclusion, the parents should choose to keep their kids home if they're not, if they don't want their kids to wear a mask, because there's, when we, when there are so many unknowns as there are right now uh, with this Delta variant, uh, it's, it's, you, it's wise to err on the side of caution and, and you don't get to choose to endanger other people's children. It's not, it's just not something that's done. You don't send your kid to school with a knife. Hmm. Um, don't allow that. So, you know, that's, it's, it's, I think it's a short-sighted decision. I think it's going to have consequences. I think we'll be back here probably within a month. Um, I, and I hope I'm wrong, but probably within a month talking about this again, because I think we're going to have a real hard time keeping these schools open keeping kids in school, keeping them healthy, keeping them out of the hospital. Uh, and and the people who bear responsibility for that are these six Republican members of the council. Hmm. Um, I mean, we had universal masking in schools during, during uh, the pandemic last year. I guess, um, yeah, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, if you look at last year, we had uh, a lot of online remote classes. We had staggered schedules. We had staggered lunches. We had social distancing. We had plexiglass barriers. We had we had universal masking. And this year, we're going to have none of that. All we're going to have this year is is a Delta variant that, that again, as Dr. Pavia said, is infe- more infectious, is infecting children at a higher rate, and is sending them to the hospital in, rep- in numbers we haven't seen. It's it's not a good it's it's you know as one doctor from IHC said it last week this is a recipe for disaster and I and the, again the Republican members of the County Council own this now this is on them Lee Larson um you know this is the the County Council returning the the mask order from the from the health director I'm wondering if um you know if individual municipalities Salt Lake County is the largest by population uh, county in in the in the state and i'm wondering if individual municipalities within the county um particularly salt lake city might be able to do something differently or is that uh, are their hands tied as well um you know every every county has the option every health department has the option to do this but they also stand the same risk that their um, legislative body be it a council or a commission might overturn it but i think that's an interesting question i mean did, did salt lake county set as like the largest county in utah do they set a precedent um i think you know we'll have to wait and see 
All right. Leah Larson um, is a reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune, and uh, we do need to head to our first break in the show. Uh, You are listening to Behind the Headlines here on KCPW and Utah Public Radio, featuring reporting from the pages of the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, Join us with your questions and comments by tweeting to at KCPW. Uh, I'm Roger McDonough. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. We'll be right back. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Stokes Nature Center Canyon Jams, presenting Rachel Byman August 21st at 7 p.m., located at Von Baer Park in Providence. Information at logannature.org slash canyonjams. Support also comes from Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984. Covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough, and I'm joined by Salt Lake Tribune reporters Tony Semerad and Leah Larson and by news columnist Robert Gerke. This is our live Friday morning Utah News Review, and you can join us with your questions and comments by calling 801. Actually, excuse me, we don't have phones today, by tweeting your comments to at KCPW. Um, we will now turn to Salt Lake Tribune reporter Tony Semerad. And uh, Tony, a couple of stories I'm hoping we can get through. Uh, first off, census data dropped uh, just yesterday, and um, you scoured that data and came up with some key takeaways. Uh, some of those takeaways are a continuation of a trend. Uh, I think a top line to the story that I think most people are probably familiar with is that Utah is growing and fast, right? Mm-hmm. So this is really the first uh, hard data to emerge from the you know 2020 census, which we do every 10 years and was conducted uh, during the pandemic, we've known that Utah uh, was was growing rapidly. And as you say, these numbers sort of solidify that in a rather kind of head spinning way. Um, the population growth nationally was at about 7.4% over those 10 years. And that's actually one of the slowest population growths um, since the 1930s um, in a census due to you know, kind of baby boomers aging and millennials having fewer kids. Utah's growth rate was three times that um, over over the same period, making us the the fastest growing state. The, the next fastest isn't really even close. Um, Idaho at 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 seventeen point three uh, compared to Utah's eighteen point four percent growth rate. And and like I say, we we've known that, but the, uh, these these numbers kind of. Um, solidify the fact that Utah is, you know, uh, these growth challenges are really going to define um, policy making over the next, uh, you know, um, five to 10 years. Um, You know, we continue to be a a very young state, even though the adult population has grown rather dramatically. And and indeed, we are um, based on 
our, our ratio of 18 and older um, adults, uh, we, we are indeed we are indeed the youngest um, in the country, with about um, you know 71 percent being above that age here and everywhere else. Um, uh, much much higher ratios. We're an increasingly diverse um, state. Uh, we remain one of the whitest um, states in the country. But if you factor in um, some of these shifts, um, our uh, you know minority population has grown to about a quarter of the state's uh, total population, where it was at about 19% in in 2010. Um, you know, and and um, like I say, uh, as my colleague Matt can put it, the country's in the midst of a kind of a population transformation has been over the last 10 years. And this is proof that no state is changing more rapidly than Utah. Um, in terms of of growth, you know, minority growth from from non-white populations, what are the what are the sort of uh, takeaways there? I'm, I'm assuming that um, that uh, Hispanic growth is is the is the biggest growth in, in our community. They they they, uh, they make up um, the, uh, Utah's largest uh, minority group, about fifteen percent of the of the population, and about twenty percent of the population in in Salt Lake County. Um, you know, the, the the census has taken a somewhat more nuanced approach to to, to race and ethnicity this time, and is um, measuring people who identify as two races or more, um, and that would be our second largest. Uh, minority group at about four percent of Utah's population, and um, the Asian and the uh, Black and Pacific Islander populations have grown as a share of of of, of the total here. <laughs> and you know, I- interesting from my perspective as you know, covering covering real estate and growth in the state, yeah. this population influx has brought an immense uh, boom in in housing construction. Um, you know, housing units grew at about a rate of about 6.7% for the country as a whole. But there again, uh, Utah's uh, seen a much larger surge at about 17.5%. Wow. Again, almost almost triple the national increase. And yet here we are, you know, with with demand through the roof and, and inventories for housing relatively low. We're even in spite of that sort of what you might think of as a construction boom over the last 10 years, we're still Kind of in a housing shortage, and the and the vacancy rate um, published as part of these census numbers indeed show our our our, our vacancy rate um, rather lower than than the nation as a whole. So we've, we've got a ways to go to catch up on housing. Yeah, your reporting says that housing analysts estimate that the state lacks more than fifty thousand rentals and homes uh, for sale. Um, but there's also like a, a huge boom in in building. I mean, we're 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 building faster than we ever have, but it's not uh, it's not helping the people who, yeah, who can't find places to live. I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's just a fascinating overhang from the from the Great Recession, which you know, um, you know, appear, appeared to kind of create an oversupply of housing, kind of coming into the the decade that started in 2010, and and the home building. In spite of being, you know, kind of running at a fairly uh, historic pace right now, it's still got a long way to catch up. Um, how about the fastest growing parts of the state? Where where are we seeing the the quickest growth in Utah? You know, um, a lot of it's concentrated on the on the Wasatch Front, although um, the St. George area has also um, uh, boomed uh, rather dramatically. We are. We are continuing to scour through this mountain of data that was released, of course, as part of the the kind of redistricting process that the country will use this data to kind of go through. And we're 
we're planning additional coverage uh, um, as as the days go on. But the 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 broad trend nationally and in Utah was population centers, larger population centers tended to grow, and smaller um, population areas, smaller, more sparsely populated counties. Uh, tended to lose population as part of a broader kind of urbanizing effect that the country's going through. Hmm. Um, Robert Gerke, I mean, you could talk about the the changes in growth. Robert Gerke, news columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, changes in demographics or, or, you know, our quick pace of growth and the, the strains that's putting on various parts of the state. Um, or you could talk about redistricting and the fact that... Um, you know these numbers that Tony's referencing, as he just pointed out, are, are the numbers that lawmakers are going to use to redraw political boundaries. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll give you that option. How do you want to enter into this conversation, Robert Gerke? Well, I mean, I think it's 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 sort of all encompassing, right? I mean, we, we in some ways these numbers are not surprising because we have seen in real time this growth that we playing out and the pressures it's putting on our resources, uh, and it's going to continue. I mean, things like you know, traffic congestion, water availability, land availability, housing prices, educating our children, clean air. This kind of growth puts a lot, a tremendous amount of pressure on, on these problems. And I've written before that the, that needs that sustainability and and accommodating and, and, you know, sort of ameliorating the impacts of this growth needs to be our primary uh, focus when we're making planning decisions at the state and local level. It's, it's really, it's, 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 remarkable and it's intense and it's going to continue. And I think, hmm. uh, you know, and, and when it comes to redistricting, I, you know, it, this sort of starts the process in a way, although they've kind of been doing some preliminary work for a while, it's going to take them a couple of weeks to get this census data down to the, you know, block by block, uh, uh, format that they need for redistricting, but it's, they're in, they're in full steam, you know, full steam now because they have a tight time frame. Both the Legislative Redistricting Commission and the and the Independent Redistricting Commission have very tight timeframes to get this done. So, if you're if it, listeners want to be involved in that process, there are many ways they can, and I would encourage them to do it. Um, yeah, and I think the and, and I think the the last part that you, you touched on, the the diversification of of Utah, is. I mean, I think it's healthy. I think you know it, it, the, we we benefit from having having other voices, other experiences other cultures in, the, in their communities. Um, and it's something that, you know, the projections, if you look longer term, uh, that's going to continue as well, because as Tony mentioned, this Hispanic and Latino population is the fastest growing and it's going to continue to be the fastest growing. They're having children at a higher rate than, than, you know, most others. And, and there's an influx in migration to the state. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to see these trends continue for the years to come and it's going to dramatically reshape and, and shape how we, uh, uh, how, how Utah unfolds. Hmm. Um, Tony Semerad, uh, you know, I guess maybe we'll turn to some other stories that you reported on this week. Uh, in addition to census figures, I mean, um, just speaking of, of, of big changes and planning for the future, uh, there is uh, the plans for the for what's going to happen at the site of the old state prison um, were unveiled, or at least the vi the vision for that um, just this past week. And this is the point. Uh, this is where the prison is currently located, but soon won't be located. What's going to happen out there in Draper? Well, so these details have been coming into focus over the course of the last um, two years as this kind of intensive planning effort for about. 600 acres of land there at the point of the mountain uh, kind of 
unfolds. And it's interesting to talk about this in the context of Utah's growth, right? Because this is a, probably one of the most uh, dramatically growing suburban areas in, in the state there between kind of southern Salt Lake County and northern Utah County. Um, and what the state has uh, has developed, it's proposing as kind of a, a model for um, development, not only across that area, a lot of private land surrounding the prison site that could also be developed, but they're also holding it up as a model for the entire state. So what, uh, you know, what are they offering? Well, it's a very, it's a very dense, uh, very kind of uh, a mixed use approach um, to land development there, um, right next to the the Jordan River. It's got um, huge kind of environmentally sensitive components in terms of treating the entire watershed as one kind of big kind of continuous green space threaded through these residential and commercial areas. They're talking about um, linking trails of a very kind of mass transit oriented area where, um, you know, they're describing it kind of as a 15 minute city where you're going to be able to find all the, all your work live and uh, recreational needs kind of within uh, walking distance. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's, uh, a, a uniquely planned, uh, development. The state will kind of refine this plan, uh, with additional, um, public input before and, and commission a number of other kind of more specific studies before it goes out to the private development community to, to see who wants to build in this area. But as a model for, for growth in this area, uh, I think the state is holding up a very fascinating kind of example. And it's interesting to see just how, um, you know, how much people are kind of inspired in, in commercial development to kind of follow this model. You said that, um, that you know, eventually there will be kind of a, a I guess, a bid prompt process for developers to get involved is it is it going to be built by one developer is it is it multiple people you know who gets the contracts i guess well that's a that's a super interesting question um of course this is in in draper's backyard uh, or in draper city limits and so um those city officials will will kind of play a unique role in kind of approving um the you know the planning and actual construction process but the model is to kind of ask uh, developers for their, you know, credentials and best ideas as to how this would unfold. And it would be akin to a kind of a daybreak model where you would bring, you know, the, the master plan development in South Jordan, which has been very successful from a residential perspective that um, individual developers would kind of contract with the, with the state to build in this area. But they're also developing some pretty strict design standards that would bring that construction into line with the overall plan. Hmm. Um, Robert Gerke, news columnist. I just um, maybe I think people might forget the fact that this is uh, you know the moving of the state prison was uh, a few years back now a very controversial decision to be made with a lot of um, you know there was a lot of opposition to it. It's it's um, I guess this is sort of the I don't know, the, the end of that, the end of yeah. that long controversy. Yeah, I mean, hearing Tony talk about it, it's 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 odd that this is, I guess, not the culmination necessarily, but the beginning of the culmination of this long, arduous process that goes back. I was covering this years ago, uh, more than probably 12, 13 years ago when they, when they started discussing this um, at, up at the Capitol. And so... Um, it's interesting to see it come together. And I think, you know, my, my hope is, um, I, I know it's, there's some controversy surrounding this. There was controversy surrounding where the prison was relocated to, 
Um, but my hope is that this sort of ties together the south end of the valley because we had this situation before where you had this huge block of land in, in the prison where, you know, very valuable land, obviously, but also it just broke up the south end of the valley because nobody wanted to build around the prison. It's not, you know, prime real estate with it with the prison there. So now we're we're getting to a point where, you know, I think it can be a real asset to Draper and, and the community out there. Um, and again, it, it ties back in in some ways to what we were talking about with the census, because there's also going to be pressures on the community to provide services, schools, water, you know, transportation that I think are going to have to be addressed. And, and, and I guess the benefit is Tony kind of touched on that this of, of a planned community like this is you can take into account all of those uh, strains, the press, the pressures out up front rather than trying to do it in a piecemeal basis. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm hopeful it works. I'm hopeful it, it, it's uh, uh, that the, the south end of the valley and the Salt Lake County and the Salt Lake Valley generally uh, benefit from this. Hmm. Uh, Tony, time frame, I guess maybe that's something we need to get to. How, what's the, <laughs> sounds like a lot of construction uh, because it's a lot of land. Um, how long will that take? And, and you know, should we just expect endless building? Uh, well, yeah. the, the, the transition of the prison up to um, Salt Lake City, of course, is a factor so that that's putting this phase of going out to private development kind of in the um, 2022, um, so sort of next year uh, context. And, you know, an important note that everybody involved at the state level with this project would underscore is this is for the benefit of all Utahns. This is state-owned land. And so they're, they're basically saying they don't have the kind of profit motive, although they want to kind of optimize the benefit for all Utahns, they don't have the same sort of private sector profit motive and can let this unfold in a timeline that lets them make the, the kind of right decisions to be, to be true uh, to the plan. So we'll probably start seeing dirt fly like in the 2022 window. And then, you know, it's sort of phased over a number of years as to how the whole thing would build out. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then just <laughs> I'm thinking about the the move of the state prison. There have been hiccups there as well because it's uh, slated to go out by the Great Salt Lake. Um, and is that? I mean, that's just continuing uh, apace, Tony. Um, as as far as I understand, but you're you're indeed right that they have they have um, intermittently hit challenges with that site out there, and it, you know to say nothing of the pandemic overlay on on construction. You know. Yeah, so we don't have a ton, a ton of time here, but I did want to get to one more story of yours from this week, having to do with changes uh, afoot in our communities on the real estate uh, end, and um, Foothill Village uh, on Salt Lake City's east side has uh, a new owner, and they're I guess they're planning some changes there. Can you talk about that? Yeah, another, you know, frankly, another sign of, of growth. We've got a huge investment coming into our commercial real estate market here in the in the Salt Lake Valley. This is a, a Charlotte, North Carolina-based development group called Asana Partners, which has purchased uh, uh, Foothill Village. And they're very intent on uh, not following what seems to be kind of a very common pattern in commercial development around here where... Um, you know, iconic sites kind of get torn down for housing, you know, apartments and condominiums. They have specifically purchased and, and have been shopping in this market for several years to find just the right niche. Um, they, they, they purchased this recognizing the value to the that surrounding community there up on Foothill Drive. Um, you know, Foothill Village has been around for almost 70 years, one of our oldest kind of retail um, shopping centers. 
a son, a partner wants to spruce up the exterior, redo the, the parking and maybe kind of turn it more into a, a, a community hub, you know, maybe change the mix of restaurants here. It's a, a, it's a much beloved, although somewhat controversial when it was developed, a, a much developed or much beloved sort of hub for that East Bench neighborhood. And there'll be people gratified to know that it it, it, it won't change um, in, in character. But yeah, it's uh, just another example of, of, of a tremendous amount of investment coming into this market right now. All right. That is Tony Semerand. He uh, is uh, a real estate and other, I can't remember what your title is, uh, Tony, reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune and uh, bringing us up to speed on growth in the state of Utah and around the Salt Lake Valley. We need to head to another break in the show. Uh, when we come back, we will turn to our underplayed stories of the week and a conversation uh, with Salt Lake Tribune re- religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. Stay with us. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting living history at the American West Heritage Center, featuring mountain men, pioneers, turn-of-the-century farmers, and a herd of bison. Activities include pony rides and tomahawk throwing. Information at explorelogan.com. A troubled monarch faces a powerful uprising and must deal with a host of foes. But if he will not yield, rebuke and dread correction wait on us, and they shall do their office. King Henry IV, The Shadow of Succession by William Shakespeare, starring members of Chicago's Court Theatre Company, next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9, here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Roger McDonough, and I'm joined by Salt Lake Tribune reporters Tony Semerad, Leah Larson, and news columnist Robert Gerke, and this is our live Friday morning Utah News Review. Uh, To save time for um, our final segment of the show, sorry, for a a conversation with Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack, we will turn now to our final segment, which is the underplayed stories of the week. And Leah Larson, we've kept you quiet for (laughs) quite a while. I'm hoping you can jump in with a pick for underplayed story. Yeah, so my pick is a story by one of our interns, Owen Tucker-Smith. We are still in the grip of a a terrible drought, and more and more counties are offering incentives to flip your strip or um, zero escape, you know, that that parking strip between the sidewalk and and the road. Um, So check out Owen's story and see if you're in a place that qualifies. All right. Uh, Thank you for that pick. I like it. uh, Tony Semerad, your pick for Underplayed Story. I'm not sure why this one hit me the way that it did, but uh, the Division of Wildlife Resources announced the discovery of a new species of snail uh, mm-hmm. up in the Uinta Mountains, bringing total number of uh, snail species in the state to 125. This little boreal top snail is kind of a size of a grain of rice discovered in a couple of locations up in the you went to mountains and uh, just seemed to bring me a lot of joy. This idea that uh, the natural world still offers a great deal of discovery. wonder and, and discovery. Yeah. Wow. Great pick. Thanks, Tony. I like that. And Robert Gerke, your pick for Underplayed Story. Both of those were ter- terrific. Um, and I'm glad you're going to be talking to Peggy about her story as well. I'm just going to uh, highlight or an update on something we talked about last week, and that is the Senate passage of the infrastructure bill. It looked like it was in a little bit of trouble for a while. They got those hammered out. Senator Romney was a key member in negotiating this, and it did pass. 
Uh, Senator Romney voted for it. Mike Lee thought it was a, a bloated uh, federal, you know, giveaway and, and voted against it. But it's it's going to mean millions, hundreds of millions of dollars potentially in, in federal funds flowing to Utah for to, for these projects that are going to try to accommodate the growth that we've been talking about. So um, that's that's just sort of an update on a, on a story we talked about last week. Yeah, and a significant story, uh, hardly underplayed. Thank you uh, for uh, for bringing us up to speed on it. And um, for my part, I'll just go, I'll just quickly mention uh, the, the, the James Webb telescope. This is NASA's new telescope that is going to look further back in time uh, through the universe than we've ever been able to do before that is uh, uh, getting close to, to launching into space. Uh, that's my pick for underplayed story of the week. Tony Semerad, Robert Gerke, Leah Larson, all with the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks very much for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Roger. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And uh, now on the show, we are going to turn to a conversation that I had with Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack, um, a conversation that was going to be uh, just about you know some questions on the overhaul of the Salt Lake City Temple, but that um, with other news that emerged, we, uh, we decided to talk about something else. Uh, take a listen. Peggy Fletcher Stack, thank you very much for being here. Happy to join you. Um, I want to ask you about the Salt Lake Temple and its renovation, which was the reason that I invited you on. But I actually first feel like I have to ask you about a topic that uh, we've already covered on this show, uh, masks. The leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints issued a call to its members on that topic and on vaccines. What did this message say, Peggy? Well, the First Presidency, a letter from the First Presidency reiterated it's pretty strong commitment to the use of masks, social distancing, and vaccinations. But it, it's the same message that's given repeatedly throughout the pandemic. But this one seems a little stronger worded. It said, we're in a war with this pandemic. We urge our members to mask when necessary and in social gatherings. And also to get the vaccine, we can win this war, they said. Uh, so it was pretty strong, not yeah. quite mandating that. Yeah. Did they say anything about schools? You know, I, can't, I know that it's not timed for the debate here in, you know, one county in Utah. They're a global church. But yeah. uh, did they say they probably didn't say anything about schools? They did not say anything about schools. Again, they're speaking to a global audience. I'm not going to mention Utah, say, but readers we heard from were, were excited and happy with the statement by and large. A question that I have is the first presidency uh, deciding to, 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 you know, remind its membership to once again issue a call like this. Is there any data or anecdotal evidence showing that members of the faith are more or less likely to wear a mask or to get vaccinated, Peggy? Does that data exist? Um, in my story, I, I did quote a new survey from the Public Religion Research Institute, which um, uh, had some Latter-day Saints in it, in the, in the survey, reported that 65% of Latter-day Saints are now what it calls vaccine acceptors. And that and that just came out, and that was up 15 percentage points from March, a March survey. But it did report that some 37% of Latter-day Saints would look to their church leaders for guidance 
Um, but 41% express at least some moderate concerns about the vaccines. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. My own reading of the survey is that still the majority of church members are, uh, as it says, are vaccine acceptors, whatever that means. That doesn't mean that's how many have been vaccinated, but that they're not opposed. But there's still a sizable minority that are opposed and very vocal. Is it too much to ask the reporter why that's the case, why there's a sizable minority? I mean, maybe, obviously, it's not just um, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but since we're focused on this specific group, is there any, in your mind, any reason for why a sizable minority of members are, quote-unquote, vaccine-hesitant? From comments I've seen, it does appear that part of their hesitation seems to be distrust of the government or something like that. And I think that that probably overlaps with some of the church members, this distrust of the government. And to some extent, other authority figures, maybe doctors, maybe science. Um, But that's hard to understand given that the church president happens to be a doctor and a, a doctor who trusts science has repeatedly praised the medical profession, even has called the vaccine a miracle. So it's a little bit hard to understand why members of the church wouldn't be in favor. And I guess my final question on this, and then we'll turn to the, the topic I invited you on here for, but do you think that the statement will will move the needle, will change people's minds? Um can people's minds be changed? Maybe that's not a question that you can answer. But yeah, do you think it will have an effect? You know, my opinion is irrelevant. But my observation, I mean, I will be following this. And I will be interested. The church has a very strong ethic of, quote, follow the prophet. And I think that certainly conservative members of the church strongly advocate following the prophet. There just haven't been very many occasions where the church prophet said something which that they disagreed with. So this will be a real test, and I will definitely be following to see. I I have a story about wards, Mormon congregations already were masking, and some not. And it, I'll be watching to see if this statement changes that dynamic. Interesting. We will uh, we will follow your reporting. It's really fascinating. And um, Peggy, I, I do want to turn to that other story that I invited you here for that I asked you on for uh, today, which is the Salt Lake Temple. Um, maybe you could just kind of quickly remind us what's going on, what's happening to this iconic piece of Utah's history. Well, and church history. In yeah. December 2019, the church had a big press conference, actually, about the fact that the historic temples of the church, but especially the Salt Lake Temple, were going to be closed for renovations and repairs, particularly seismic upgrades. And church leaders were concerned that an event like an earthquake might um, harm the temple, which was completed in 1893. So, and it's granite. It's it's stood the test of time for a long time, but its foundations, I guess, are somewhat wobbly or something. That's not a technical term, but 
And then shortly after they began the renovations, Utah did have an earthquake and there was some damage, not, not dramatically. At that time in December, they had said that the interior would remain largely the same or that it would be actually returned to its earliest version, just spruced up. It has been renovated and the interiors have been renovated several times since the 1890s. And that the historians, preservationists thought they would take it back to the earliest version. Yes, but but that doesn't appear to be happening. In fact, that return to the to the original temple is not happening. And there are some people who are um, not so happy about the changes that are included in this renovation. Um, can you tell us who and, and why they're concerned? Oh, yeah. It's the historians and preservationists. The church announced earlier this year, 2021, that, in fact, the interiors were going to be dramatically, as they put it, reconfigured inside the temple. For listeners who don't know what happens in there, it's a kind of ritual reenactment of the story of Genesis with Adam and Eve and in the garden, et cetera. And then their, their sojourn on in the world and the hereafter. And originally that was all done with actors, live actors, and participants would would move from room to room, sort of up the scale to the highest, which was the highest room was known as the celestial room, which is heaven. And the announcement earlier this year was that people would not move from room to room. There would no longer be live actors that would all be done with a film. Now, I have to say the the filmed version of the ritual has been used in almost all temples since the 1970s. But the Salt Lake Temple and the Manti Temple were the last two temples to use that live, those live actors, which they originally said would continue, but now they're saying, no, that's not going to happen. And the, also the artwork that was on the walls in those rooms has been removed, they said, and stored, photographed, but will not be put back. So, yeah, the people who are upset are preservationists and historians, artists. Some of that artwork was done by artists, LDS artists who were sent to Paris in the 1890s to study with impressionist painters, wow. things like that. So I guess what does the church say is the rationale for, for making these changes? Um, in their news release, they said that they wanted it the the Salt Lake Temple to be more efficient because the live rituals take longer than the filmed version and also accessible if you have any kind of uh, mobility issues that it would be hard to move from room to room like that. So it's mostly efficiency and, and mobility, accessibility. There have been past instances, I mean, other controversies surrounding church properties that are getting overhauled and, and, and having historical elements removed. But is there something else going on? Is there a, a sort of bigger movement afoot to change what temples are in the faith? No, the temple ritual is the same as it has. I mean, it's been revised over the years, but the purpose of the temples are the same, whether it's a film or, or live 
actors acting out the rituals. And, um, and that's, I guess in the announcement, President Nelson said he wanted all temples to be the same, not have these temples that had a different form of the ritual. So the, the people who are cl- complaining are mostly not actually not just historians, but members themselves who feel connected to the history, the pioneer history of the interiors, the sense of what they experienced in terms of the live rituals. And in some instances, the role that their families had in the construction of the temple or in making that artwork. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, descendants of the pain artists and painters and artisans and- Right, um, wow. Well, when will the renovation of the Salt Lake Temple uh, be finished? You know, we asked that just yesterday in in or Wednesday in Mormonland, our podcast of the person who oversees Temple Square. It was slated to be four years, so they started essentially in January 2020, and they're saying they'll be finished in 2024. But you never know if they can hold to that. A, a massive undertaking, and we will see how quickly it gets done. Peggy Fletcher Stack is religion reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, check out that episode of Mormonland as well. Thank you for making time for the show, Peggy. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And that's it for Behind the Headlines here from the Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. Have a great weekend, everybody. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.